All right, so we're going through the Bible. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. The title of our message this morning, The Glory Has Departed Not. That's my title, and I'm sticking to it. So as we go through the scriptures, I'm just amazed at what I get to learn. It's just awesome, awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask that you'd speak to us through your word, speak to us through this time of being able to just sit at your feet and take in, Lord, what you have for us. We thank you for the worship, the worship team, Lord, their sacrifice of just coming and blessing us with that, and just uh, pray you continue to have your hand upon their ministry and uh, just all that's taking place in their lives. And so go before your word, Lord, as we lift this time up to you. Uh, As always, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen. So last week's message was titled, What to Do When the Glory Has Departed. We talked about superstitions. I titled it Stupidstitions. But um, what to do when the glory has departed. You will remember that broken down into three sections, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 Um, the nation of Israel had lost 4,000 individuals and their enemy, the Philistines, uh, were at battle with them and the Philistines thought they were doing something. There was, the leader suggested that they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp and that they take the Ark of the Covenant with them into war, into battle. They didn't seek the Lord to do that. They, They didn't pray. They didn't ask God what he wanted them to do. But for whatever reason, that's what they come up with. Um, And as the Ark of the Covenant comes into the territory where the nation of Israel is, there's there's a loud cheer and a shout. And they're they're just, um, they're happy that the Ark of the Covenant is there. But I I saw them using it as kind of like a rabbit's foot, like, like this superstitious thing that, and they even said it in that chapter, the Ark is gonna deliver us. And the ark was important. The ark was something that God had given them. Um, he told them the measurements and everything that the ark was supposed to be and do. And remember, it was to be housed in the Holy of Holies. And the mercy seat would sit on top of this. this it was like a, a chest, if you will. And inside of it were the emblems of God's faithfulness, but also a reminder of Israel's uh, slothfulness and unfaithfulness. Aaron's rod was in there that budded, and that rod represented them not submitting to God's authority structure. And the manna was there of God's provision. The jar of manna was was in the ark as well. And that spoke of God providing for them. But but were they happy with God's provision? No, they were complaining about the manna. And over and over you just see um, that the things that were housed inside of the ark were a reflection of Israel's disobedience. But on top of the ark, the covering of the ark was the mercy seat, right? And there were two cherubims, two angels on top of that ark. And that's where the priest, the high priest, once a year, would, he would put blood. And that mercy and the blood is what God saw. He saw Israel's rebellion through the blood that was sprinkled. And they were accepted because of that blood. They were forgiven because of that blood. And it brought that, that sacrifice brought them uh, a relationship with God and an ability to approach God. And so 
God's presence would dwell in between the mercy seat, in between the two angels where the blood was poured out. But it wasn't supposed to be used as a good luck charm. It wasn't supposed to be used as this thing to go into battle. And so that takes place in chapter 4. And um, after the 4,000 being lost, they go into battle with the Philistines and 30,000 die. 30,000 of the nation of Israel. And so they're still not getting it. You have to remember that in history, they're coming out of the time of the judges. Samuel would be the last judge um, before these kings would be raised up in the nation's history. And in that time, three times it says in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so at this time, the nation of Israel, unfortunately, is given over to the idolatry of the surrounding nations. And they're more like the world than they are the children of God. And so God is at a point where he's going to intervene and he's going to use whatever he has to use to spank his kids, to get their attention, to bring them back to the fold, if you will, as they're out there straying. And then the last part of the book, after the prophecy of Eli's two sons being killed is fulfilled, the last part is one of Eli's sons, Phinehas, his wife is pregnant and she ends up giving birth and naming her son Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. And so the title of this message, The Glory Has, not, has Departed Not, we're going to see that God's glory is not departed. Even though that's what the nation of Israel is thinking, even though that's what they're feeling, even though that's what they believe they're experiencing, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Frank Turek, I, I showed a video and I didn't feel that the audio of the video came out very clear. So I want to kind of give you um, just what that video said. But in Frank Turek's video, it was a little five-minute video, Creation and Creator, he, what he does is he's an apologist, and he goes around to college campuses, universities, and he'll do a question and answer for them, and he shares on God and, and the gospel and creation and all of these questions that people have about God. Um, And he'll take questions, and he does a a great job. But he did this little video, Creator and Creation. And in it, he said that if we were to travel from the sun to the next nearest star in our galaxy, 30 trillion miles away, traveling 5 miles per second, it would take 201,450 years. And so our sun is our nearest star. And if you were to travel to the next nearest star in our galaxy, he's saying that it's going to take over 200,000 miles to be able to do that. The Bible declares that there are as many stars as there are sands of the sea. So if you think about all the sand on all the beaches in all the world, that's a lot of stars, would you not say? And so in that, If you were to go from one grain of sand to the next grain of sand, or in our solar system, from one star to the next nearest star, over 200,000 years. If you were traveling at five miles per second, and you left in first century AD, in the time of Jesus, you'd be one one one-hundredth of the way there. And we say that we want to explore space. Probably not. He goes on to say... In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26, let me read it to you. He quotes this verse. He says, to, it says, to whom then will you liken me? 
Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. And so what he's trying to do in this video that he is showing is the picture of our small God that we have for whatever reason. He goes on to ask the question, do you want to know who God is? And then he says, remove all limits from your mind, and that's God. If he's an ounce of any attribute, he's infinite in that attribute. If he is an ounce of love, he is infinite love. If he's an ounce of justice, he's infinite justice. If he's an ounce of power, he's infinite power. He is the standard by which everything is measured. And then he goes on to say, um, one reason for the second commandment that we should have no graven images is because any image you draw of an infinite being limits his majesty. An infinite being has no limits. God is saying, if you want to know what I am like, look to the heavens. What do you see? A virtual infinite expanse. And so we have a tendency to put God in a box. The nation of Israel put God in a box, literally, right? To think that the Ark of the Covenant was going to save them. Not the God of the Ark of of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant. And they had resurrected in their lives this superstition, this thing, this material thing that was going to do something for them, that possessed no power. He quotes Psalm 103, verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. He quotes Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And then he concludes quoting Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, as Christians, those who have come out of the world, those who have come in contact with the creator of the universe, those who have experienced this infinite, awesome, wonderful God, we have to be careful. Because like the nation of Israel, we can serve idolatry. We can resurrect things in our lives that possess no power. The world is going to see us as superstitious no matter what. But here what we do is we see the Philistines now thinking that they've accomplished something because they've captured the ark of God. And in their minds, it's God. They won God. They beat God. After after all, if you look at, again, chapter 4, you see 4,000 die and then 30,000 die of God's kids. But remember, God is using the world and the Philistines to be able to spank his kids to get their attention to draw them back to God away from idolatry so as we go through this chapter I'll talk about it a little we'll kind of wrap up with just where we're supposed to be as it relates to um, the glory of God and what we're supposed to be doing with that as keepers of the glory of God as those who have an opportunity to express in our lives what the glory of God is okay So this is 1 Samuel chapter 5. 
Let's read verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verses, uh, verses 1 through 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it before Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. And so we see God's humor somewhat here. Um, The glory of the Lord has departed was the last thing that we read in chapter 4. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. God can extract every ounce of glory for himself if he so wishes in the world. And he'll let the world think what the world is going to think. But God is concerned with his kids. And he wants to bring his kids back into the fold. Remember the parable of Jesus going after the one sheep, the one little lamb that has strayed, and he'll leave the 99 in the safety of the corral to go after that one straying lamb? God will move heaven and earth to see his kids come home. And it's just an incredible thing as you watch this. And God will let the world think whatever the world wants to think, but ultimately we will see God I don't know, vindicated? Eventually, when it's all said and done, the Bible declares every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is king. So they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. No doubt the Philistines are thinking, woo, we kicked God's butt, or we kicked the God of Israel's butt, right? We did it, we won, we're doing this. And now we got their, their little statue, and he's gonna go to our threshing uh, threshold, or our room of our little statue, because that's our God. Mm, and they're thinking they're victorious here. Dagon was represented with a half-man, half-fish figure, and was said to be the father of Baal. This deity was, person, was the per, uh, personification of the generative and vivifying, which is life-giving, principle of nature, for which the fish, with its innumerable multiplication, was especially adapted to set forth the idea of the giver of all earthly good. And so this is their God, some merman-looking thing. And so the first night, they set the ark up, and they put it in front of Dagon, and Then they go in, and in the morning, Dagon is bowing down to the ark, which is representing the presence of God, who's receiving glory in in that, as it's bowing down to the ark of the covenant. And there's an opportunity, right, for the Philistines to be able to say, hey, what's what's going on? If you remember in chapter 4, they knew the history of the God of Israel, did they not? They said, this is the God that has delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians with a strong and mighty hand. He delivered them with all of those plagues and he set his kids free when they were in bondage. 
And so they know a little bit about this God. Again, God's uh, reputation has gone before him. Well, they prop their little God back up. Come on, little buddy, what are you doing falling down? Maybe, Maybe it was the wind when we shut the door. I don't know. Okay, let's prop our little God up back again. And then the next day they go in, and what do they find? They find their God not only bowed down to the Ark of the Covenant, but he's missing his hands and his head is chopped off. And again, here's an opportunity for them to say, whoa, man, this God of Israel is something else. Huh? Maybe we should seek him. Maybe we should repent. Is that what they do? No, instead they say, therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. They set up a ritual where, where this is how we'll deal with this. We'll just make some religious thing out of it. Unfortunate. Moving on, verses five, uh, 6 through 8. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of God, the God of Israel, must remain, not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God, of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the, of the God of Israel away. There are five Philistine cities within this region, and each one has a leader over that city. And so what they're going to do with the Ark of God is they're going to get rid of it and take it to another city. Get rid of it, take it to another city. And at each step of the way, God is using the world, the Philistines, as a a rod for his kids to be able to discipline them, chasten them, set them right, and bring them back to honor bring them back to where they need to be. And so God is far more intent with you and I's eternal state than he is with our present comfort. And remember this well, God comforts the afflicted, but he will also afflict the comfortable. And so in our lives, if we're not doing and living for what we're supposed to, then God has his ways of getting our attention. And in this case, we see that very thing taking place. God is getting the attention of Israel, and he's doing it through this nation that did something that they weren't supposed to do. You don't play with God. You don't play games with God, and God will let them know that. And so these tumors, and there's two things. They said tumors and something else afflicts them. They're being afflicted by God. Um, It's interesting, as you go through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, I'm kind of, as I'm studying it, I'm looking at this as like a, a, a... a series of the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant is going to get bounced around and there's going to be wrong things done with the Ark and right things done with the Ark. And so we're going to learn what we're supposed to do as it relates to the holiness and uh, just who God is and how we're supposed to be responding to God. But in this, you see in one of the future chapters, I don't know if it's six or seven, But they're going to send the ark of God eventually back to the nation of Israel. And they do it in an incredible way where only the hand of God can be upon it if it's going to go back. And so they do that. But they put these offerings inside of the ark. They put a golden tumor and a golden rat or mice 
mouse inside of the ark as an offering to God. And so many believe that that had something to do with the shape and what was taking place in the afflictions that God had given the nations. Older commentators believe that it was hemorrhoids that God had given to uh, the nation. And so there's, again, there's just a little humor taking place. God is spanking the world, if you will, where a little kid would be spanked on their little bottom. And so they're experiencing that, and so that's why the tumors. And if you look at the, his, the, the Hebrew, um, even in the Septuagint, in verse 6, the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you look at the Septuagint, added to verse 6 is a word that, um, that, here, let me find it for you. I'll read it to you. Here it is. The Septuagint adds this verse, this to verse 6. And the cities and the fields of all the region burst up and mice were produced and there was the confusion of a great death in the city. Some think this was originally in the Hebrew text and explains why golden images of rats were included in the ark of God. It's 1 Samuel chapter 6 verse 5. So just an interesting dynamic of the world doing what the world's going to do. And guys, we can't be... Um, surprised that the world sins and that the world does things the way they do. But shame on us when we copy the world. Shame on us when we take our march from the world and how they do what they do. We are called to come out from amongst them and be separate. We are called to be an entirely, a totally different entity than that of the world. And so we have to be very careful with the subtleties of Satan and his ways. As we continue on in verse 9, it says, So it was after they had carried, away, carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, with tumors, and tumors broke out on them. So the hand of the Lord was against them with great destruction. The city of Gath didn't do any better than the city of Ashdod, more of the destructive and painful tumors broke out on them. Closing out verses 10 through 12. Therefore they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronots cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And so here we are again. We will be either a fragrance of death or a fragrance of life. In this case, you see the fragrance of death has come upon the enemies of God. They can look to God, they can get from God um, if they inquire what it is they're supposed to do. But again, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. We can read a chapter like this as Christians and we can see God's hand of discipline, his chastening hand upon the world. But don't even, that's not our focus. That's not even where we're supposed to be. Our, vo- our focus, our vision is to be on what is God doing with the kids, with his kids? with the nation of Israel, because that's where we are instructed. And what he's he's doing is he's getting their attention 
through another nation as a form of discipline, as a chastening rod for his kids because they're far removed from the path of God. And this is what I see today in just so many lives of Christians. I see compromise on a level that is unspeakable. And I can't fathom in my mind why that takes place. The world is going to do what the world does. The world is is duped. The world's going to go to chaos, confusion. That's what the world's going to do. The Bible over and over prophesies what it's going to look like in the last days. In the last days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And all of these things, we have it prophesied throughout the scriptures. It's never to be that for God's kids. It's never to, we're never to look like the world. So that's one thing. Another gigantic thing is we need to be careful when we come to a chapter like this because we think, get them, God, get them, yeah. Tumors on their backsides. Woo, God's showing them. Burn them, Lord, get them. That's not our attitude toward the world and the people in the world. God loves the world. And the Bible declares that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. On my way to work this week, I was listening to uh, Pastor Chuck Smith on the radio, and he's going through the book of Revelation, and he's in the midst of the tribulation period, in the book of Revelation. And it goes from chapter 4 all the way to like 1819, and it's a hard, hard, hard thing to teach. I've taught the book of Revelation three times. It's a difficult book to teach. Because it's awesome right there, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and then you get to, oh, 5 and 6, and you start the wrath of God being poured out on the world. And then it's not until 18 and 19 where you have the judgment of, of religious Babylon and material Babylon, and then you get into the millennium, and then you get into heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth, but that's a long section to get through. And so he's in the middle of the tribulation period, Pastor Chuck Smith, as he's teaching it on the radio right now. And he said something that just totally stood out. And it's something that as I listened to him, I, I recognized, yeah, that's true. He said, we have to be careful when we're teaching from sections of scripture like this and when we come across the wrath and the judgment of God. Because we can glory in these things. And he said, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So even in the midst of teaching this, I always share the goodness of God. And it's something that I've recognized as I listen to any message that Pastor Chuck Smith teaches. He's always smiling and able to share how much God loves people and what he wants to do in their lives. And I think right now, a lot of Christians are confused with how to share the gospel and how to proclaim because this world is so different and they're, they're, they're protesting and they're passionate about their causes and they're just so wrong. The world is just so wrong right now. They couldn't be more wrong than they're just calling black, white, and white, black and just it's, it's a trip to live at this time and to see what's taking place. And somehow I see these Christians arguing politics and getting into the political debate, guys, that's not, our, that's not our lane. We have no business in that lane. 
God has not called us to clean up and fix America. He's called us to see people come out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us to save Americans, not America. And we somehow think that we're called to save America. America's going to hell in a handbag. That's fine. And it's my country and I love it and it hurts to watch. But this is a temporal gig. Alive a little more than 200 years. We're a little nothing nation. And the only reason why we were great to begin with because we put God in his rightful place and we started right there. We're far from that. Far from that today. And we're not going back. Oh, don't say that. Yeah, we're not going back. It's just not going to happen. And so be careful with the passion. You want to match the world's passion of being wrong right now? Share the love of God. And watch God build up and raise up an army, one individual, one soldier at a time, coming out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We ended last chapter with the glory of God has departed. Glory hasn't departed. God don't need you. God don't need me. He's acquiesced to use us. He's chosen to use us. And if we have no idea how to communicate in this culture, get alone and spend some time with God. Check your compromises. Wonder why you're not influential in this culture. Because Jesus was in his culture and his 12 guys were in their culture to the extent that they changed the world. Start with prayer. It's always sad to go into the prayer room and find nobody in there. Do we think we have the power and the strength to do what God has called us to do outside of God? We don't. And so if we want to be instrumental, it's not going to be through, through bashing the culture, through telling young kids how bad they are. When I was your age, it was nothing like this, and we did this and that and the other, and oh my gosh, you guys are so lost. So were we in contrast to the culture before. And so were the others, in contrast to the culture before. Nothing new under the sun. We could talk about, we could curse the darkness all day. We could talk about how bad it is all day. Bring in the light and the darkness will flee. Share the love of God because that's the thing that is going to transform hearts. And you will see the glory of God revealed. God is getting his glory in this chapter. Even though the nation of Israel thinks the glory of God has departed, God is receiving glory. Why? Because he don't need us. He's acquiesced to use us. If you would be so bold in your life to, be, to, to, to obey what you already know is truth and you're not obeying, you would be a dynamic Christian. You don't need another Bible study. You don't need another nugget of truth. You don't need to be convinced. If you and I would simply obey that which we already know, whoo, the world would be like, dang, this person really, really believes it, don't they? But we don't. We compromise. And we wonder why it's so dark. And if the world is bad, it's the fault of the Christian, it's the fault of the church. So if God's going to use this tiny little church and this community, it's going to start with prayer and it's going to start when we get serious about the things of God. And we begin to acknowledge the compromises in our life 
And we begin to say, yeah, you know what? That is an area of compromise in my life. I don't know why I do that. I don't know why I'm so weak in that area. I don't know why I've allowed myself, given myself permission to disobey something that I know is clearly delineated in the scriptures. And that's where I see the nation of Israel. God's bringing them out. And God is going to get them to the place where they are going to be at the most vibrant, the most, they're going to they're gonna possess the most territory in the nation of Israel's history under King David and King Solomon. And they're going to rise and God is bringing them out. I think God is doing the same thing to us. He's calling Christians out. He's calling us on what we believe. He's calling us on our compromises. He's calling us to finally say, Lord, for your glory, I want to live. For your honor, I want to live. For your name's sake, I want to live. I heard it long ago when I first became a Christian. If I ever want to know where I want to end up in my life, start at the end, work backwards, and start moving in that direction. What are they going to say about you at your funeral? What will be said when it's all said and done? And people are communicating what your life was about. That you work an extra hour somewhere, that you achieved another, you know, worldly trinket somewhere, that yet your zip code was this, that you drove this. I remember back then, early, early, just saying, I want to be remembered for one simple thing, that I love Jesus. That, that I love Jesus. What, what else really matters? That I just loved him back for what he delivered me from, for what he saved me from and to. If my life counts for anything, if it's ever said when it's all said and done, mad dude, mad dude really loves Jesus. Man, I can't figure him out all the time, but... He loves him some Jesus. That's it. And, and you can just pick yours, whatever you want it to be, when it's all said and done, and then work backwards and work towards that. And not even so that people can say it, but so that you know you can please your daddy, your heavenly father. And hopefully we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Hopefully we want to be known as disciples of Christ. I had somebody in the first servant said, I just want to be known as a bond servant, somebody who freely chose to serve God. Praise God. Whatever it is, yours don't have to be mine. I just know that's mine. And that's what I live for. That's what I wake up for. That's what I study for. That's why I do what I do with my whole life. So encourage, I want to... Try to encourage because we're coming out of chapter 4 where they had superstitions. We're seeing God's hand. His glory hasn't gone anywhere. He can extract all the glory for his name, his power, his wonder that he wants. He has chosen to use you in this world to reveal his glory. Revelation chapter 4. All things were created for him and for his pleasure they exist. Revelation chapter 4 says, you were created for his pleasure. Is your life bringing your God pleasure? It is or it isn't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you've called us to. We thank you, Lord, that you don't need us, but yet you choose to use us. 
And I pray, Father, that we would truly reflect and wonder what it is that drives us, what it is that moves us, what it is that um, motivates us. And Lord, if we find ourselves unmotivated, if we find ourselves challenged in that area, Lord, I pray that we would spend time in your presence, that we would look up and see the glory of the firmament, the wonder of your creation, that we would be in awe of who you are, recognizing that in light of that, wow, you're deserving of glory, Lord. So thank you for your word. Thank you for just continuing to teach us and uh, be with us, Lord, as we desire you. In Jesus' name, amen.